Welcome to Sexcavation, hosted by me, Bridget Woods. We're here to take you on a deep dive into sexuality and gender research. Sexcavation helps break down those big concepts you've probably heard before. Ideas like heterosexism, polyamory, toxic masculinity, with the help of some pretty cool psychologists, academics, and activists. Our mission is to make all of this complicated research on sex and gender accessible to everyone because, let's be real, it affects all of us. Today, I am privileged to be joined by Dr. J. Garrett Walker, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of San Francisco. Professor Garrett Walker is a developmental psychologist whose research focuses on multiple identity development for black lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer emerging adults. She is most interested in the ways in which black LGBTQ young adults navigate and negotiate social marginalization in their multiple communities through negative religious rhetoric, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and heterosexism. Professor Garrett Walker's work has emphasized the role of identity in the development of culturally competent HIV prevention interventions and community resources. In 2014, Professor Garrett Walker implemented a university-wide Check Your Privilege campaign that sought to raise student, faculty, and staff awareness around social inequalities and privilege. She has become increasingly interested in the ways in which shared educational privilege impacts colorblind racial ideologies and privilege awareness. The campaign went viral and has since been implemented at universities from Canada to New Zealand. Let's dive in. So thank you again, Dr. J. Garrett Walker, for joining me today. I'm so excited. Uh, we're going to be diving into sort of a lot of different things around sort of black gender roles and queer folks and all these really exciting things that I'm thrilled about. So thank you for being here with us. Absolutely. I think it's always a good place to start on the foundations, right? So you talk a lot about, about stringent gender roles and sort of looking at masculinity and femininity, specifically as it pertains to black folks, that is often either this sort of tension of forced to conform and or criticized for not conforming. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what stereotypes or what sort of gender rules do um, and what they don't do or what they don't allow for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I think before we can actually talk about these stereotypes and rules, we have to talk about the gender binary and how limited it is. As a society, we live within like these very restricted imaginary <laughs> gender binary. And this binary or kind of an assumption of existence, if you will, maintains that there are only two sexes, right? Female and male with corresponding genders, women or women and men and associated ways of being feminine and masculine. And there's this strange expectation that these sit on these polar opposite sides of this imaginary pole as if there's nothing in between, right? And, and when society limits us to those polar opposite ends in this way of thinking, it limits our way of being. And I, and I propose that it's those limits where gender-based stereotypes and rules come from. And I, I don't actually think that gender-based stereotypes and rules are different for Black people when compared to other racial groups. I just think that the delivery and engagement in those rules is often less flexible for Black people. Um, and I think that they are oftentimes pushed to the polar opposite ends and they're given less kind of space to sit in the middle or in that free-flowing space between those ends 
um, when compared to other ethnic groups. And so I guess when it comes to um, what these stereotypes actually do, I think on a larger scale, they keep people trapped, right, in this limited vision of who they can be, who their children can be, who their friends can be, who their partner or their partners can be. And these stereotypes in some ways rob people of the freedom to exist in a way that feels truly authentic to them, right? I mean, I think that the most insidious thing about the gender binary is that people don't even realize that they're trapped in the gender binary. They often think that they're behaving in the way that they're behaving because of biology, because their chromosomes told them so, when actually um, they're engaging in that way because of societal constructions of what it means to be living in a gendered world. I think that's a long way to basically say the stereotypes trap us. <laughs> they keep us um, very limited. And I think there's a lot of history, uh, um, particularly of many people, many people of color, being very flexible when it comes to gendered behavior. But colonization changed that, if we're going to be real about it. Colonization completely, completely changed that, that understanding of what it means to, to live within a world um, that's gendered. Absolutely. One thing that you mentioned that I think is always so important to come back to, and I often find myself not coming back to this, so, th so thank you really for, for highlighting it, is this idea of how we navigate you know, gendered roles and gendered expectations. As you said, these are very new in the, in the history of the world, right? Very new constructions and a direct result of colonization, right? And imperialism. I'm curious as to how we sort of start to talk about deconstructing those gender roles and, and assumptions around those things. And if that's a way of sort of saying, these things are so new, right? And so can we look at history as a way also to kind of move away from those, how stringent they are? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, we can in the academy because we do this work all the time. But how the question becomes, how do we really get this information out to the masses for them to bite, to realize that they need to even deconstruct and decolonize this understanding? All I can say is colonization jacked us up. I mean, that, that is the easiest way to put it because it came in and it brought so many rules and people don't realize how many rules are a repercussion of colonization, right? So we can talk about religion, which is like a large part of my um, research program. Religion, with all the great things that it brings for people, connection to a higher power, sense of worth, increase well-being. Religion, particularly Christianity, if we're talking about Black people specifically, is not the religion that people had prior to colonization. And so there's not a lot of thoughtful conversation about that within Black communities around how Christianity specifically is not what you would have had before colonization. And so I just think that People don't realize how, how much, and, and we know that research has continuously sort of shown that Black people are overwhelmingly more religious than any other ethnic group in this country. And, and they hold on to the Christianity. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't be Christian. If you are Christian, that is great. If that works for you, it works for you. What I am proposing is that you think critically about the ways in which you participate in Christianity, how Christianity was given to you, and what ways you can take the parts that are liberatory and leave the parts that are restrictive. Um, it would not be helpful to tell people to not be religious. <laughs> I, mean, right. I, think that, I think that religion has served a, a very specific purpose, regardless of what your religion is. If your religion is Christianity, Judaism, Islam, 
African traditional religion, whatever your religion is, you know, I think that it serves its purpose, but how can you deconstruct it and decolonize it is the question. So that doesn't really answer your question. To answer your question, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that if I knew, the world would be a different place, right? Because I'd be able to like tell people, hey, this is how you completely decolonize your mind from all the ways that you're being repressed that you don't know that you're being repressed. Mm-hmm. I think what I often um, try to instill in my students is plant a seed, right? You take this knowledge that you learn from this class about race or about sexuality, about gender, you plant a seed in someone else and over time it will definitely grow. It might not grow immediately, but we know that it happens. I just try to remind those of us who do think critically, who are decolonizing kind of every component of our lives, that you share it with someone else. And, you know, if we think about research, it's kind of like a snowball situation, snowball sampling, you know, you give it to someone and then they'll give it to someone and then they'll give it to someone. And hopefully, eventually, some generations later, mm-hmm. <laughs> it will be better. And I think that we're seeing the repercussions of some of that, right? Even now, I mean, I think that people are starting to have more conversations about decolonization. I think that social media has helped kind of tip the needle a bit when it comes to having conversations about decolonization. But of course, that's only going to be for those who who tap in to those circles within social media. Um, right. Or tap into the conversations with others. One thing I did want to come back to, and I had to stop myself from really like emphasizing all this, but I'm so... I'm very interested in looking at spirituality and like queer queerness. And then that, that's my sort of line of research right now. And I was curious if you could actually talk a little bit more about religion and or spirituality as something that can be instrumental in, in liberation and reimagining sort of uh, gender, but also, you know, all of these other constructs as well. Okay. So we have to go back to the fact that the Bible, if we're going to talk about Christianity specifically, the only stories we got are the stories of white men. So we're missing like such a large part of the people who were probably articulating anything during that social, historical, political time. Mm-hmm. I think that using the exact text will not help us in our efforts to be liberated. I think that we have to move beyond the text and take the one key message of the Bible What is the one key message that Jesus gave? (laughs) Love thy neighbor as thyself, right? Or do unto others as you have them do unto you, right? I mean, those are basically the same rule. Um, And so I think if we take that and we center that within religion, we can then move toward liberatory praxis for sex, for gender, for sexuality, for race, for everything. Because we know historically, religion has been utilized to oppress women, to oppress black people, to oppress LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to use Christianity or religion to get to liberation. Please mm-hmm. understand that that is not what I'm saying right now. But if we were to use religion as the pillar of reaching liberation, if we focus on the love, that is how we can get to liberation for all people. To, to bring it sort of back to thinking about 
larger ideas, right? I was wondering if you could help us sort of define or, or understand patriarchal masculinity. You know, I obviously understand patriarchy and masculinity, but I actually don't often see them together. It's sort of maybe implicit that they're together, but, you know, explicitly I thought, I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate on, like, what does that mean and what does that look like? I mean, that's exactly why we wrote the article the way that we wrote it. Because I think we want it to be clear that there's nothing wrong with masculinity. What we have an issue with is patriarchal masculinity. And so, in my mind, simply put, patriarchal masculinity is a social tool used to control behavior. And like you said, if we break it down more, we know that patriarchy is a social system that privileges and prioritizes maleness, manness, masculinity, with a particular focus on control and the oppression of women, the oppression of anything that is feminine. And if we think about it, patriarchy is often, and some may argue predominantly, upheld through the social construction of masculinity and femininity. So it's that limited understanding of human behavior through masculinity and femininity that subjugates and controls human behavior, right? So this gets us back to the conversation about the binary, that when we try to make people feel like they have to fit within a very specific type of masculinity or femininity, we're trying to control their behavior. So for example, what are some key components of masculinity? Super independent, dominant, strong, lack of emotional expression, expressions, aggressive, right? These are things that have historically been associated with masculinity. And I would say that um, all of that has been constructed through whiteness mm-hmm. to uphold white supremacy. It's been defined and reified by and through whiteness um, for centuries. That has continued to have a trickle-down effect on Black people, Indigenous people, and other people of color, even within their communities. And this is how we go back to people not understanding how colonization impacts them, right? That white people decided what was masculine. They used that patriarchal masculinity to subjugate and control the behavior of people of color. And then those same people of color utilize the same oppressive tool within their own communities. So, so I'll give you like a little bit of example. So if we go back to when um, Africans were first brought to this land as enslaved people, um, if we just take black heterosexual cisgender men as an example, they did not have access to white definitions of masculinity, right? A pillar of masculinity in this country is the protection of one's family. Okay, that's a strong pillar of, of the ultimate masculine man duty, right? Protect your family. Mm-hmm. Well, black heterosexual cisgender men were forced to watch their wives be beaten, forced to watch their wi- w- wives be raped, were often separated from their wives and children. So these men could not protect their family because white supremacy wanted them to feel as if they had no power they would often lynch black men in front of the entire plantation of enslaved people to control the behavior of enslaved people. And so all of these actions by white people were used as a tool of control. And that is when we talk about the masculinity of whiteness being used to subjugate black people. Now there's been some generations since slavery, but we do in some research and in some communities, and and I wanna make this very clear, this is not all black people. This is not all black men, okay? There has been enough research that has shown that if we think of something more contemporary, intimate partner violence, 
black women are more likely to be harmed by black male partners than any other racial group. Like 50% of w- murders of women is intimate partner violence, right? So we see it there. Um, we see it now still in the stereotypes about black men, which have maintained since slavery, right? That continue to criminalize and contribute to systemic oppression and violence towards black men and black people in general, really. But, you know, back in slavery, they would categorize enslaved black men as, as brutes, as bucks, as these kind of wild animals that needed to be tamed. Mm-hmm. They were seen as um, predators on white women. And those stereotypes have maintained because white notions of masculinity could not fit the anger that black men had for being enslaved. I mean, like, it just, it doesn't really make sense when you, when you think about it, but it does because it upholds white supremacy. So, I mean, I know this is a podcast where I really wish you could see my face, the, like the level of... <laughs> Just like what in the heck has society done to us? I think mm-hmm. I know your question was about like patriarchy and masculinity together. It's mm-hmm. really about patriarchy or hegemonic patriarchy, really, right? Like this white notions of control of oppression that is rooted in the presentation of masculinity. Mm. That's why they're together, right? So like masculinity of itself, like presenting as quote unquote a masculine person, which we see queer people do all the time and it's not patriarchal at all. Although Mm. there are some queer people who do participate in patriarchal masculinity and that is also another episode for another day. (laughs) But if we think about the people who do not engage in patriarchal masculinity, they still are masculine in so many ways and it's Mm. beautiful, right? But it doesn't have the control. It doesn't have the oppression of the feminine. It makes me think of, you know, uh, this conversation around colonization as well and, and linking our understandings of the present to the past, right? If making those connections, which feel at times so obvious, but aren't because of just the ways in which we're taught, you know, our education system, what happens when we start making those links to the, to the past and that connection through history and through time um, more visible, Right and saying this has ex- this has explicit links back to slavery, right, and to enslaved folks, um, and is a, is a direct um, result of that violence as well. Yeah, I mean, one you you hit the the nail on the head. The education system in this country leaves out so much. I mean, it just really doesn't tell the whole picture. So that means that people have to then be charged to learn it on their own. And if we're going to talk about systemic oppression of Black people. Who has time to sit down and read a book when you have to work three jobs, when you have to take care of multiple children, when you can't get a job? I mean, because the system is rigged against you. You know, I mean, I think that it's it's actually really unfair to expect black people to do this work on their own when white people are the ones who created it. Right. So like, I think that white people need to be more thoughtful and strategic about the ways in which they exhibit patriarchal masculinity Um, Even so now, how they uphold white supremacy culture within their workplace, within their house, within their everyday interactions. And they're the ones who really need to dismantle and decolonize their own ways of being. Because unfortunately, that's still kind of the the status quo, right? This sets the stage for everything. If white people empower at all levels, government, education, health, judicial, 
if they really decolonize their behaviors and their actions, it will then also see a trickle down effect of healing and restoration for everybody else in this country. Mm, Absolutely. That was what just reminded me of sort of how queerness is almost u- can be used by white folks as sort of this barrier to to decolonization, right? To sort of acknowledgement of white supremacy and anti-blackness in ourselves um, as a way of upholding that patriarchal masculinity that we often claim hurts us, right? It's this strange sort of um, uh, space of not wanting to to give up the power and the control, as you say. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we just take the queer community as an example, um, we know patriarchal masculinity has impacted queer people. It literally um, is the root of heterosexism, homophobia, cis sexism, transphobia, but we see it even within the queer community. So queer folks who have been harmed by all the isms towards LGBTQ people they still uphold white supremacy for sure. And you're right, they totally use it as a barrier. I mean, I've done some research on um, racism racism within LGBTQ communities um, and it's real, it's definitely real. There's lots of racism within the queer community, but they'll often, oftentimes queer white people will say, oh, I totally get what's happening to black people right now, to Asian people right now, because I'm queer and I've been oppressed too. And it's like, honey, your struggle is not the same as the struggle of people of color. And it's definitely not the same as the struggle of queer people of color. Um, I think that there's just this lack of decolonization of like understanding the complexity and the intersectionality of, of it all, of, of life, of, of living in this social political time that we're currently in. As you said that, all I could think of was how queer folks of color, but specifically queer black folks, are erased, right, in this narrative, right, of it's, you know, queer white folks and straight or and or cis, you know, black folks, and there's no room for that. And so I, I think about what does the navigation look like for black queer folks kind of moving between these varied, like racial expectations, gender sexuality expectations, and this sort of like, often tension filled space. Mm-hmm. Right. No, there's lots of navigation. (laughs) There's lots of navigation because like we said, there's racism within within the queer community because we know the queer community is predominantly white. So there's racism within the queer community. And then there's heterosexism, um, cis sexism within the black community. And so I think that what has maintained for black queer folks is um, what we like to call fictive kinship which is your, your people, but they're not necessarily related to you by blood, but they're your people, right? So we know, again, history. I don't know how I keep going back to history. I'm not even the historian in my household. My <laughs> wife is the historian in the household, but here I am talking about all this history. Um, if we think about the ballroom scene, right? And Pose mm-hmm. has like totally made ballroom scene accessible to everyone. And I, I appreciate mm-hmm. Janet Mock and everybody for that work. You know, the ballroom scene was created for this exact reason because black and brown queer people were being kicked out of their family homes. The white queer community was not very accepting of them. And so they found their own spaces. They made their own spaces. That's what we call fictive kinship. You're people, but they're not related to you by blood, but they are the people you go to when you need it. And I think that is how black queer folks navigate. They learn from elders, they communicate with elders, and they stick together. 
I think, you know, other ways in which they navigate is, you know, kind of freeing themselves from social expectations. I think that's something that I had to do early on in my um, journey of queerness. I don't know if I would even call it a journey. Like, I've been gay for so long, but, you know, you don't really know that you are when you're that young. And mm-hmm. then you start, when you get older, you look in retrospect and you're like, wow, that was very <laughs> queer. Um, but, like, I had to really let go of social expectations. Like, what does my family expect of me? Mm-hmm. What do Black people expect of me? But what do I expect of me? Like, what makes me feel good? What makes me happy? What brings me joy? So I think, like, freeing themselves from social expectations um, is the first step for any queer person, honestly, to survive. Mm -hmm. I think that, like, Black queer folks also have to let go of social comparisons, right? Like, they can't expect to be the same as the white queer folks, and they can't expect to be the same as the, the Black hetero folks. And I think, too, like, a lot of queer Black people had to, like, go a validation from others. I think that like a big part of of communities of color is like, oh, we're so proud of you. Oh, we, we, we are so happy to see you do this. Oh, we're so happy to see you do that. But there's this strange thing that happens in the black community when you come out as queer. All those things that they were so proud of you about, they no longer care about anymore because being queer is like the worst thing you can apparently ever do. And I think we see that in a lot of communities of color. But yeah, that you, when you can let go of that validation from others, I think um, that helps also. Absolutely. Where do you think, if you think resilience plays a role in this and, and how is that enacted? And I'm also just curious your thoughts on like the idea of resilience and what that looks like in, in research and outside of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a big debate over the last, I'd say like five, seven years around resilience or resiliency Mm -hmm. is this something that people are born with and they just have or is this something that you can learn and gain over time I don't know that we have the answer to that question Um, I think that's something that we're still trying to understand something we can't really explore the way we want to because it's not like you can randomly assign a child to have resilience (laughs) you know right there's no way to really kind of empirically (laughs) test it but um, in my mind and the reason I started doing work on resilience um, or resiliency so much of psychology is a deficit model and even more so for black people, it's a deficit model and even more so for queer people, it's a deficit model. And I didn't like that when I was in grad school, that really, really bothered me. And I said, I'm not going to fall into that deficit model mindset. I want to know what's keeping people safe. What's, what's protecting them. What is, what is helping them thrive? And so I really wanted to take a positive psych perspective in the ways in which I explored the experiences of black queer people I think that for Black queer people, I will say that because from early on, your parents teach you how to be Black in a white society. And and we call that racial socialization. And there's a lot of research on racial socialization that, um, you know, your listeners should totally look into if they're interested in it. Racial socialization basically says that parents prepare their children how to engage within Black spaces, how to engage in white spaces, how to interact with Black people, how to interact with white people, how to interact with non-Black people. And so early on, like, Black children are getting this kind of, like, training. It might not always be very explicit, but there are things that Black parents do. And I think that 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 training and those experiences around race really do support Black queer people once they've kind of, like, understand their queer identity as well. Because they've already built up kind of this toolbox of surviving Mm -hmm. while Black that supports them in surviving while queer and Black. So I think that more research needs to be done on resilience because I think that there's something to it. 
there, there's something to having gone through a lot of things in your life and still being able to thrive that we need to explore more because we cannot continue to look at all the negative things that happen to people and why these negative things happen to people if we expect for people to really reach a point of healing if we really want people to be at a space of positive well-being most of the time Mm -hmm. if we're always looking at the negative we're never going to get there thank you for bringing up the deficit-based model because I think about this like on a daily basis within psychology it's so ingrained that even to name it is like, well, what does that mean, right? Like, what do you mean a deficit-based model? And to name it and then explain it and sort of be like, oh, right. It's it's almost this like, well, that's what psychology does, right? Is that it, it is about the deficit, um, which I think is really harmful to psychology actually and what it can do and where it can go from there. Mm, absolutely, no. Um, <laughs> psychology classrooms are shaking my head. I mean, I'm literally shaking my head, you all, and I know you can't see me, but literally SMH. Um, Same. For research design, I strategically make my research design class about queer people or about privilege and oppression in general in lots of different ways. So I've Mm -hmm. designed it so that we don't have a choice but to talk about it. And y'all aren't going to come to my class with this deficit mindset and get an A. I'll tell you Mm. that. You're going you're gonna to transform that thinking. You're going to evolve in here. Um, if, even if it's the only class that you take mm. where you're challenged. Even just like writing this article about reimagining masculinities, I was reminded once again, there's so little research on trans men that I was just so irritated. Mm. So frustrated. Where is the research on our trans men that's not HIV related? Because there's now been like this, this uptick of research on, on trans guys who have sex with cis guys. But it's like you're only studying trans guys because they're with cis guys. So that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where's our research on the experiences of trans men of color? Where's our research on our gender nonconforming enclaves of, of gender nonconforming women? Right. Mm-hmm. There's so much different cultural language of gender nonconforming women, stud, aggressive, dom. Like, where's that research? Like, there's so much in the queer community that is not HIV, depression, mental health, like negative mental health outcomes. And um, mm-hmm. I just feel like there's there's so much lacking in the work. It's interesting that while we were talking, up until you mentioned gender nonconforming folks, I was not thinking of gender nonconforming folks and and queer black folks. And I think that says, I mean, it says something about me, but I also think there's to, to your point, you know, going again, back to the gender binary. I also wonder about the inflexibility of existing in that in between space as well. Right. Where if you're not, if you're not adhering to sort of the, the end posts, right. Of this imaginary spectrum, um, what happens in that in between space, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk about before we talk about the in-between space, which is like like I feel like something totally different than being on the opposite ends, whether you're cis or trans. Right. Mm. So I think that um, a big part of patriarchal masculinity is the devaluing of the feminine. Right. So that automatically puts oppression for queer men who might be more feminine presenting in their behaviors. And I'm putting feminine in quotation marks because 
what does that even really mean? What, what behaviors are technically feminine? I mean, that's very constructed by society. In the United States, something that's seen as feminine could be seen as totally masculine in another country. And so, I mean, I think that if we think about it here in the United States, feminine basically means anything that's not masculine, which is also problematic in its own, that masculine is the default, but whatever. When cisgender queer men, and even if they're not queer, technically, um, cisgender queer men who do not uphold traditional masculine norms, they're definitely placed at the bottom of, I would say, kind of like a, a masculinity hierarchy. Because we know that there's a masculinity hierarchy mm-hmm. among men, right? That there's a particular type of manness, of masculinity that is accepted. And that if anyone deviates from that standard, they are considered feminine, less than, or gay, even if they don't engage in same-sex behavior. So that's what happens to, to cisgender men. They're also, you know, more likely to be beat up, coming up, be bullied um, growing up. I would say more likely to be outed in a lot of ways, more likely to experience workplace violence when compared to um, cisgender uh, queer men who are more masculine presenting, presenting who can pass as heterosexual, right? Like they have very different, different experiences. And then if we talk about the gender non-conforming women on the other end of this spectrum, right? Like you're a woman on this end, but then you're masculine on the other end of the spectrum, which is why the spectrum is a spectrum. And it's not like these poles, it's a galaxy of existence. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) There's so many options, but I think that for gender non-conforming women, they're often placed in situations that are really um, uncomfortable as well. And I think that, their presentation of masculinity challenges patriarchal masculinity, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of cis hetero men uncomfortable. And there has been actually some research, some qualitative research <laughs> on this that um, black gender nonconforming women have felt like they were treated poorly or uh, experienced some type of physical or, or emotional trauma from cis hetero black men because of their presentation of masculinity, because of the, the gender non-conforming person's presentation of masculinity, right? That their delivery of masculinity in some ways pushed up against the patriarchal masculinity. And then if we talk about like the non-binary people, uh, the people in the middle, or I'll even kind of throw um, our trans siblings in who don't, uh, who aren't cis assumed, they then have a whole nother level of oppression. I think that there, at this day and age where we are now in society, there is more acceptance of the gender non-conforming woman. There is then more acceptance of the gender non-conforming man, but there's still great oppression about non-binary and um, trans folks who do not quote unquote pass as cis. Um, Mm -hmm. I hate the term pass. That's why I like to say cis assumed, right? Like people don't assume they're cis when they're walking down the street. Right. And and we know and we know this to be true. I mean, even for some trans women who who are cis assumed, the violence that trans women, black trans women experience is just outrageous. There needs to be a call to action. There's definitely a whole nother type of <laughs> pandemic happening around violence of trans black women and trans brown women. So yeah, I think that Gender is, is so expansive, but patriarchal masculinity really tries to put people into these very, very small boxes. Mm. 
that most people don't fit in, if we're being honest, cis or trans, most people do not fit in the patriarchal masculinity box. Mm. Or I can even argue the patriarchal femininity box. Because, I mean, femininity is also rooted in whiteness, if we're going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's why Serena Williams has gotten so much flack over the years, is because she doesn't fit within this little kind of lily white version of of, of whiteness that people ex- quote unquote expect of a tennis player. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just gendered racism and, and black women specifically have to deal with gendered racism in a way that many other groups don't have to deal with. Yeah. I, I think, and, and, you know, we've been talking about this entire, you know, talk about, you know, patriarchal masculinity and gender norms and all of these things, but we also keep coming back to this, this idea, you know, you've been talking about, which is sort of reimagining masculinities. And I'm wondering if you can sort of like paint us what that looks like. And also I'm just really struck by the idea of queer folks at sort of the center of this reimagining in the disruption of these things. So what, what does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. So there's a book that I encourage everyone to read. It's called Unapologetic, A Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements by Charlene Carruthers. And this book really talks about how we can reach liberation. And I think that part of reimagining masculinities is getting us to that liberation. Black queer feminism is intersectional and it centers the most oppressed people. Queer people of color are the most oppressed people, right? And that's not even including queer people of color who are disabled. They're even more oppressed, right? Mm -hmm. Now we know that the numbers of them are much smaller, so there's not enough conversation about that either. When we center those who are most oppressed, so those living at the intersection of multiple identities that are oppressed, whatever that combination is, it could be Black and deaf, it could be queer and um, with PTSD or autism, I don't know, whatever, whatever the combination of, of oppressed identities is, we center that. And when we can center those who have been oppressed in our quest for justice, everyone will be free, right? Like everyone will have liberation if we make sure that the most oppressed are taken care of. Mm. And Black queer feminism really talks about dismantling all systems of oppression at one time. And so that's why I really appreciate Black queer feminism. And it, and it really helps us to see what is necessary for freedom for all people. And to really answer your question about reimagining masculinities, that is why we put queer people and queer people of color at the center, because they already are disrupting so many systems of oppression. Queer people of color disrupt racism. They disrupt white supremacy. They disrupt heterosexism. They disrupt cis sexism. Um, and that is why I feel they should be centered in all of our work towards liberation. We know that queer people are already reimagining masculinities, right? Butch, stud, aggressive, doms have been reimagining masculinity for centuries. I mean, there's so much, there's so many like stories and books on this, right? Not necessarily in psychology, but there's literature. So Stone Butch Blues is a book that I, that I read coming up it was very white, right? Like for me, mm-hmm. it was like in the people of color perspective, but it was like, wow, this really talks about how like masculinity can be seen outside of manness. And I think if we're going to reimagine masculinities, we need to understand that anyone can present as masculine. And if we go back to our conversation about history, there's a long history, even for black people, of men engaging in quote unquote feminine behaviors. 
And there's a long history of black women engaging in quote unquote masculine behaviors. Prior to colonization, black people were far more flexible in their gendered behavior, but colonization placed them at those polar opposite ends. Slavery didn't even let enslaved people sit on the corresponding end of the pole, right? So like men were not allowed to be masculine. Women were not allowed to be feminine during enslavement. Um, and so they had to adjust accordingly because of gendered violence. And so there's always been flexibility for black people around gender presentation, gender behavior, but like we said, history has been lost on so many people. And I think that to heal from patriarchal masculinity, like we said earlier, I think folks just have to decolonize their minds. I mean, I think that's really the only way that we're gonna get there is that there has to be some intentional and thoughtful conversations happening in predominantly black spaces, some intentional and thoughtful conversations happening in predominantly white spaces, predominantly Latinx spaces, predominantly Asian spaces, like in all the spaces. Um, people just need to really be working towards decolonization and, and realizing how much colonization has shifted their worldview, has shifted their lens, and has limited their lived experiences. Thank you so much again for joining us. I feel like tangents and all, this was such a phenomenal experience. So, so thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me. To stay connected with Dr. J. Garrett Walker's work, you can follow her on Twitter at J underscore Garrett Walker. Want to learn more about what you heard? Head over to sexgenlab.org to find all the blogs, infographics, and videos on gender and sexuality research. Maybe you have an idea or topic you want us to discuss. You can email us at sexcavationpodcast at gmail.com. This has been Sexcavation with Bridget Woods. Hope you've enjoyed the dig.